Uh, James chapter 1, we're in a continuation in, in a series of uh, the book of James where we're just kind of looking through this letter, uh, going through it exegetically. In other words, we're just taking it verse by verse, line by line, just to see uh, what the Lord has for us as he wrote this letter uh, initially in Jerusalem. James, as a pastor, uh, was the half-brother of Jesus, writes this letter to a church in Jerusalem. And, and we find that this has been stepping on some toes, kicking some shins to the church here all the way 2,000 years later in Cedar City, Utah. And it continues on uh, with that same theme that we've been looking at, rejoicing in trials, uh, asking for wisdom while we're going through some stuff. And James is just going to keep marching on with that theme. And so we're going to pick it up in verse number nine. In James chapter 1, if you don't own a Bible, we have some ordered. We'd love to get you one. Otherwise, you could download it on your phone or read along on the giant screen behind me. James chapter 1, verse 9. Hear the word of the living God. Let the lowly brother boast in his ex exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and the withers the grass. Its, flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. When God has promised to those who love him, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When then desire, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, let's just one more time go before the Lord and ask him to bless the reading of his word. So God, we just come before you once more and we ask that God, that you would uh, do something in our hearts, do something in our minds, change us to make us more like the Savior, God. I, I thank you, Lord, that some of us have perhaps come into this room looking for some divine revelation or some word or deep word of God. Thank you, God, that we just heard your word. And it is your word that gives us life. And it is your word that sharpens us and makes us more like you. So God, may you be exhausted, exalted and let the church collectively be able to say, how glorious is our King Jesus in Christ's name. Amen. A little bit of a slip of the heresy tongue right there. May you be exhausted, oh God. God never sleeps. Okay, James has began this uh, particular letter, if we could just kind of uh, catch everybody up to, to where we are up to this point. We're only nine. Uh, well, now we're 18 verses in uh, to kind of give us this recognition that, that when we face trials of various kinds, 
it, it makes a big difference in how you view them. In fact, it kind of changes your perspective on trials when we are met with trials. In fact, it's kind of the language of uh, when you're going to be faced. In other words, like you're going to be punched in the gut, almost this in, in continuous uh, nature that once you get this, through this trial, then all of a sudden, wham, there's another trial waiting for you right around the corner. But proper perspective is, is that as we are going through these trials, joy is growing in our heart. And, and when we are kind of met with kind of the brick wall and we're like, I don't know what to do with this. This seems a little, uh, it, this is a new one. I don't know how, to, how I'm even going to mentally get out of this. Well, I love that James gives us a way out. And the way out isn't you, isn't like you going to, you know, read more self-help books and how you can become a better person. It's pretty simple. Uh, in fact, it's just ask God for wisdom. I mean, that's it. So, so you in you asking with the proper position of your heart, God, I need wisdom to get through this. Man, Praise the Lord. James says God will give it to you generously. All right, now that is good news. Now, unless you are, and we talked about this at length last week, you're that, um, and, and we call them morons, right? You're the guy who is always going to, you know, seven or eight different people asking for wisdom, but you're not asking for wisdom, right? You're asking them to tell you what you want to hear. And so, and so James gives a warning about that person. That person that goes to God who is just looking for God to tell him what he wants to hear. God ain't got nothing for you, honey. Okay? And so he's going to continue in in this theme. And he's going to point out a few things. The poor. The rich. More on trials. Temptation. And he's going to end with a glorious gift for us. Now that's my outline right there. We're going to talk about the poor. We're going to talk about the rich. We'll talk about trials again, more temptation, and then the way out for the believer and the glorious hope that is kind of presented to us in this passage. Now, let, let's think through this. As we work through this text, uh, we've, got to, we've got to wrestle with a couple of things. Now, in James' time, this is first century. Uh, this is in, in, in a Jewish area. Poverty was, I guess, what would be called the, um, the dominant class of people. In fact, I would kind of even suggest that you, you were either in one category or the other. You were either very poor or you were very rich. All right, this, this kind of American um, middle class uh, that, that we have, kind of a prevalent class in our culture, wasn't really a thing back then. I mean, you may have a few people who are in that category, but it just wasn't a dominant class. In fact, if you were Jew, you were likely in that uh, dominant, uh, the dominant poverty, right? You were in poor. But we have two sets of people that James is, is going to address here. And he's going to point out that heavenly wisdom will enable both those who are poor and those who are rich to view their circumstances in light of, I guess we can call it in light of a biblical view or perspective that is godly or perspective that is right. In essence, what James is going to tell us here is that if you are poor or you're rich, and maybe you're not, you're not either. Maybe you're in that middle class here. It, it's, it's, it's important to view your status 
through God's big picture. Or we might put it this way, that instead of his readers thinking about their circumstances, whether you are economically or socially, he wants you to view your circumstances, not through those lens, but he wants you to view your life and your status through a biblical lens. And here's what I mean by that. So, so look at the first character that he gives us. He says, the lowly, now I'm reading out of the ESV. I think the ESV gives a better translation, uh, and, and particularly a good translation for this particular verse when he says, the lowly brother. Maybe some of your translations, translations say, brother in humble circumstances. Well, the word humble here is the way that the ESV word is using it here, is the lowly brother. Now, now listen to this. The brother in humble circumstances or the lowly brother, it seems like there's a juxtaposition of verbiage here when he says the fellow who's low should rejoice that he's high. And the fellow that's high should rejoice in his humiliation. Now we got to do a little unpacking here because for the American mind, this is difficult for us to understand. So I've got a view that if I'm poor, I've got a view that I'm actually doing very well. And then for some of us who are in our wealth, then we've got to view things with a little bit of humiliation. Isn't that odd? Have you ever read this and you're like, what, in, what, what is James doing to us? Like, is he trying to like confuse us? Listen, it makes me wonder like, you know, we know that James, like when Jesus' ministry was going on, we know James like didn't have nothing to Jesus. In fact, you know, he could have been in that family crowd that wanted to lock Jesus away. Like, Jesus, you're crazy. You're not supposed to say you're the son of God. Like, that's, that's madness. That's kind of cuckoo talk. So, but it makes me think like, man, I think James may have been listening to some of Jesus' sermons that he was giving. Because when Jesus was giving a sermon, these sermons were like so hard pressed where he was flipping kingdoms around. He was flipping how we view things like totally upside down like you think of like the sermon on the mount you think of like different things Jesus would say like if you want to be great then what do you got to do nobody listened to the reads the bible in the church okay right if you want to be great what do you got to you got to humble yourself and become the lowly person and I think maybe James maybe caught wind of that sermon or maybe he was, you know, maybe talking to some of the, I don't know how he, but, but James is right on target with the teachings of Jesus in this when he says, listen, the lowly brother ought to view himself in a high position. And he's not trying to get them to think economically or socially, not a perspective of status, but this is a perspective of what the Bible would say, and it was a perspective of you may be in your trial, you may be in poverty, but I want you to rethink things. Here's how you're going to get through this, right? This is what James is saying. Don't look at it like, like man, my bank account really stinks right now. Listen, you have the glorious riches of the eternal Savior. And that's enough. Isn't that interesting? Now, 
if I were to go up to a poor person and say, like, you know, they're like, man, I'm really struggling financially, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just walked up to him and was like, but you got Jesus. Now, some of you would be like, dang, Matthew, like, you ain't got no heart. Like, you couldn't, like, spot the brother, like, sponsor a child, like, give him, like, five bucks or something. Notice that James doesn't do that. He said, listen, it's all in your thinking. In your circumstances, you're focused on in poverty, but I want you to focus what lies ahead for you. And that is the eternal treasures of Jesus Christ. And that's what you have in store. And that's how they can shift their thinking from being the lowly brother to then what James says, you now have a high position. Now, this message, and I think you have to say this in passing. Uh, well, not maybe in passing, but I think I have to go in a little bit of depth in this. That this message is not, if you just apply wisdom, then you will become rich. Did you see that in this passage? Did you see that in any Bible verse? That if you just apply the wisdom from on high, then you will be, you know, the, the, the heavens will rain down on you. Now, used to, you can, um, used to is kind of a southern term. Years ago, you, you would be able to, to, to flip on the television. You remember those things? Kind of a sub thing, black screen, you turn it on, and on Sunday night in particularly, I don't know if it still does this, because I don't watch TV. I watch Netflix. So, so you got like, like this screen. You turn it on, on live TV, and then you flip on the Christian stations, and what do you got? You got a guy on there that's telling you the opposite of what this passage tells you. You got a guy on the screen that's telling you, if you apply the wisdom, if you, then this. It's a scheme. Wanting you, in your poverty, to pour money into his massive kingdom so that he can get rich while you're just getting more poor. Because you're foolish enough to give that guy money. You have guys who, who would apply the scripture. See, if you just ask wisdom, but before you ask wisdom, like, like you, need to, you need to sow into my ministry, give me more money, and then God's going to bless you eternally. That is not what this passage is saying here. Now, yes, God can, can bless you financially. But that is not what this passage is, is getting to. That if you just apply wisdom, then boy, you're going to be rich. And you'll get the big house, you'll get the fancy car, you'll, you'll get all of the toys and the trinkets and everything, and suddenly Jesus Christ has become like your bellhop, and all you got to do is just rub the lamp the right way, and poof, here comes the genie, and you're like, genie, give me this. It is, it is, it is so like, like God mocking for us to apply scriptures like that. And so this message is not about how to become rich. In fact, James doesn't even say anything. He's like, listen, you're poor. <laughs> and that's about it. But he wants you to change your perspective. Now to the rich. Secondly, he gives a word to the rich. That kind of seems like a little bit more, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say harsh, but a little bit more rough around the edges to the rich brother. Now that's important because we've got a poor brother and we've got a rich brother. Meaning that this was not some unconverted believer in the church. Because remember the context. This is important. Hermeneutics. The study of the context of what's happening in the scripture is so important. The letter is written to a church. It is not written to an outside organization or outside people. It's written to God's people. Which implies that there were some wealthy people 
in the Jerusalem church. So then he says, to my brothers who are rich, if the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, what is the rich brother supposed to do? Well, he says, you take pride in your low position. So you got to ask, like, what is James saying? Well, let's be clear what he's not saying first. He's not saying that there's a problem with being poor. You notice, you, know, you notice this, right? He doesn't say, I feel, you know, incredibly sorry for you in your poverty. Like Mother Teresa don't pop up out of the scripture right here and be like, we're going to just feel sorry for you in your poverty. That don't happen, does it? That, that's, not, that's not to say we don't forsake the poor. That's not for say, to say that we don't forsake in, in helping the poor. Now, nor does he then suggest that there's anything wrong in possessions with wealth. He doesn't imply that. He doesn't say we got a rich problem. We got a poor problem. Let's introduce Marxism and redistribute the wealth of the, the, the wealthy to where everyone is going to have an equal distribution. He de- exactly. That's how I feel about Marxism too. You, uh, some of y'all better get saved on that. Um, you, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go into some social justice you know, type doctrine that's just going to lead you like empty. He doesn't do that at all. He just leaves it as is. He acknowledges the place of the poor and says perspective is the way to deal with your status. He acknowledges the significance of the rich and he says perspective is the exact same way for you to deal with it. In other words, when he's telling them, you regard your humiliation. Now that seems a little interesting, doesn't it? Here's why this is humiliation. Because and I'm not categorizing every wealthy person like this. But it would be easy for a wealthy person to have the tendency to, to kind of surround all of their, their heart and just bow their knee to what they, all, what they have, right? It's, it's like, man, look what I got. Man, look what I have. I have all of this fancy stuff. And we've kind of wrapped our identity around those certain things. Now, when a wealthy person recognizes that those things do not define me, I'm defined by what Christ has given me in my identity, then to the secular person, that seems humiliating, so that you wouldn't wrap your identity in all this stuff you've acquired? Like for, for an unbelieving person, that is insane. And that's what James is getting at here. So now we've got to wrestle with, so we've got the poor, we've got this rich guy, and we're, we're looking at our status, not through the lens of what we have or what we don't have, but through the lens of what Jesus, our identity in Christ, Okay. Have I tracked with that so far? So now let's go into the temptation. What is temptation? Simple working definition. It is an enticement to sin. It is an enticement to sin. And it is an enticement to evil. All right? Everybody good with that working definition? 
You're just simply being enticed to do something evil or too enticed to sin. Now, James is issuing this kind of warning here, and, and, it's a, and it's a good warning. Now, if you'll notice, he doesn't, in verse number 13, enter into like some kind of philosophical discussion, right, of the problem of evil, the origins of evil. Uh, he doesn't go into either, and I'm not going to get into that either. So he's just saying, like, listen, here's the reality of the world you live in. You're going to be tempted. And you're going to be tempted by each of your own desires. Now notice how he kind of makes that real personal to us, right? To each of your own desires. And, and later we'll, we'll get into this in, in James. It's almost as if uh, there's a crafty enemy and there's a foe that we have that studies us. And he knows how to tempt you. And he knows all the things that you're tempted, that you can, that can easily distract you with because he's studying your playbook. Like, I don't, I don't think Satan's going to like tempt me with like, I don't know. I was going to say something dramatic, but there's children in here. I, I don't think Satan would like tempt me with like stealing like tickets to a baseball game. Okay. Number one, I can't watch baseball. It's just boring. I'm sorry if that's you. Right, let's watch football together. We'll be friends. Like Satan's not going to be like, I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to tempt thrower on stealing some tickets. <laughs> you know, because I'm gonna be like, okay, this is odd. I don't really care. No, he's going to know my playbook. And, and, and so you're going to be tempted by your own desires. Now, do all desires lead to evil? No. We, we have to recognize that. But we also have to recognize on the flip side that, that we're in a fallen world and those desires can quickly become evil and become sinful. So you have to recognize that in your own. And so look what he says. So he says, you're going to be tempted and then you're going to be lured. All right. I love this language. Um, I, I know this is going to be a, a huge surprise to some of you. I'm not a big fisherman. Um, I know, I know that's a shock. You know, it'd be like if I told you I, I'm not a football player and you'd be like, what? I can't believe. I know it's, it's not true. Um, but he, but look at the language he's using here. Like like fish language, like you're being lured. That's what I think of when I thought of this verse. I I believe I've shared this several times with you and and in the past, and and I and I'll say it until I'm dead. You you got to read this book by and and again I, I recommend a lot of dead guys. Thomas Brooks. He was a 17th century Puritan writer, and he wrote this book called Precious Remedies of Satan's Devices. Precious, I'm going to say that real slow because hey, none of y'all ought to read this book. Precious Remedies of Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. Real easy read, very short book, uh, very incredible. Thomas gives us incredible writing on how we know we are being tempted. What are the tactics that the devil uses? Again, this guy was in the 17th century. He was far beyond. Uh, I mean, he's like, we're, I'm reading this now and I'm like, you can't, can't believe this guy in, like writing this today. And so, he's, so he's identifying what are the tactics that the enemy uses and then how can we as a believer combat them? Okay. 
Uh, he's, got, he's got seven. I'll just quickly go through these really quick because I think Thomas is thinking in terms of what James is talking about in this particular chapter in this verse. The first way that Satan tempts us is he shows you a bait and hides the hook, right? This is what James said, the temptations do to you. They lure you. How is a fish lured? They got the shiny little worm. And that's all that, that you as a fisherman want the fish to see. You don't want the fish to see the shiny hook. So you got to hide the shiny hook. Honey, let me tell you something. That's exactly what Satan does to you and I. He'll bring out the flash. He'll bring out something so attractive. He'll bring out something that seems so appealing. So appealing that it has to be from God. Because, you know, like, this is glorious. Only God would do something like this. But the craftiness of the enemy is so crafty, so deceitful, that he's going to hide the hook. And so what happens? Oh, man, it's, it's just a really cool object. I mean, I, I got to participate in it. I've got to give in to the temptation. And you give in to the temptation. And then you give in to the temptation a little deeper. And then you get into the temptation a little deeper. What happens? The same thing happens to the fisherman and the fish. He's lured you out to the deep, dark waters. And before you know it, you are trapped. So he shows you the bait and hides the hook. I love this one. He tempts us by painting sin with virtuous colors. Again, it's that same idea. Oh, look, it's... You know, we wrap it in, in virtue and in righteousness, like, right? Well, it looks appealing, smells appealing, by also getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. You know how we do that? Well, we'll say things like, you know, and we'll do this in, in prayer groups. I'm not nosy, I'm just concerned. Honey, you nosy. You ain't got no business dipping in that other person's business. How does Satan tempt us? By overstressing the mercy of God. Oh, Paul deals with this. Oh, I can do this because I know God will forgive me. Oh, I can do this and I'll take advantage of grace. Oh, I can do this because I'll take advantage of mercy. By making them bitter over suffering... You know, this is like that person that's, that's always saying, no one knows how many sacrifices I've made. I deserve this. I deserve to be, you know, lured into this temptation. By showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And lastly, Thomas Brooks says, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another part of your life. It's almost to say that I'm good in this area and I'll just focus on this tiny area, but I don't really care about the rest of the areas, the sins, the temptations. It would seem that Thomas Brooks um, was very prophetic in what he was writing in the 17th century that it would still echo to us today. In verse 15, he follows it up. He sets down this cycle. You see Satan, who is just a flat-out liar, that's all he know how to do, is a murderer, the father of all liars. 
he would be one that would tell you 99 truths and then get you to believe in all of them. And then he'll tell you like the one light lie, the, the hundredth being the lie. And it doesn't matter because he's told me all these truths. So what? I've got to believe what he's saying. I've got to believe this. And this is how the method of Satan has been since the garden. It's to challenge you on the authority of God's word. So he recognizes, then no, it's not God who's tempting you. It's Satan who's tempting you. And here's how Satan will get you. He'll get you to believe 99 truths for one lie. I mean, that's what he did to Eve. Don't believe the authority of God's word. And the antidote to that lie, James gives us in verse 17 in 18, I'll point this out and I'll just go through some application and we'll be out the way. And, and what is the antidote to the lie of the evil one? Well, it's, it's in this deep-seated conviction of the goodness of God. Let me rephrase that. To the unchanging goodness of God. Now, all of that by way of introduction, okay? So I've got five minutes to finish this thing up. What does the rich, what does the poor, what is temptation, what is wisdom, what is trial? What do all of these things from verse number 2 down to verse 18 have to do with anything? I am so glad that you are asking the same question that I was asking as I was reading this. Again, hermeneutics, you have to study the context of what's taking place. That's the rule of, a, of, of going through scripture. James is essentially saying, like, listen, trials, you remember I'm telling you to count on joy. God's going to give you wisdom. And let me tell you something. They don't have a net worth attached to them. Whether you are poor or whether you are rich, you are going to go through trials. You are going to be tempted. Stop looking through the lens of, well, how much money do I have and how much money do I not have? Listen, if you're breathing in this room, you're going to be met with trials. And James keeps on pressing, keeps on kicking us in the shins by telling us not only that, you're going to be tempted by each of your own way. Not as a temptation to a group, but the enemy's going to individually tempt you. And if you read that and you stop that, that seems terrifying, doesn't it? Now, wait, I, I thought this whole gospel thing that, you know, I gave my life to Jesus. I repeated this little prayer and, and the dude told me that your life is going to be glorious. That it's going to be rainbows and butterflies and, and there's going to be a continuous Chris Tomlin song, I hope not, uh, in the back of your head, like from day to night. And James stops that in its tracks and tells you, here's the Christian life. It is hard. It is difficult. You're going to be tried and tried. You're going to be in trials. And what do we do? Well, look what he says you do. For those who endure, what happens? You'll be saved. Now, here's the question. Who is enduring? I'll tell you what, it ain't you. You are not the person in the captain's seat when it comes to endurance. Because anytime a trial comes, what is the first thing you want to do? 
And I ain't talking to you. I'm talking to myself. The first thing Matthew Thrower wants to do is get the heck out of Dodge. I didn't sign up for this mess. But there is something inside of me that's taking place that is not of me. That is something bigger than me that is causing me to do what? To remain steadfast. Steadfastness is the word James uses here. So then the question, how am I going to get through this trial? How am I going to get through this temptation? I can tell you it ain't going to be because of you, but it's going to be because of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Because that's the question you have to ask yourself. How am I going to endure life? It is not going to be because of you. I promise you that. If you think you're that good, let me just help you out in your egomaniac self. You're not that good. Like you can barely get your underwear on in the morning. Like how do you think you're that good? Sorry for being crass. This is the only thing that just came out of my mind. But listen, you're not that good. How am I going to endure my salvation? How am I going to endure in trial? How am I going to endure through temptation by way of the Holy Spirit? That's why Paul says in Philippians when he's writing to them that he who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it. Baby, it ain't you that's the one that's completing it. It's the Holy Spirit empowering you to complete that faith. It's the Holy Spirit empowering you to endure the trial and the temptation. I'm preaching better than y'all talking is what I'd say in the South. That's the hope of this passage. Because if I read this, I get really discouraged. I'm going to have a trial. Thanks, James. I'm going to be tempted. Thanks. Not just tempted. He's going to know. Like the devil's going to be like watching me. And he's going to know the things that, are, that he's going to be tempting me with are going to be viable temptations. And I got to tell you, if you're not a believer, that is very terrifying. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has bought you by his blood. You've got an incredible hope of Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit enduring you through those trials. That's the good gift that Jesus gives us. James talks about this good gift that he's given us. Man, that's it. It's this security in him that, she, that he is sustaining me. He is the one that is causing me to persevere in my faith. Theologians would call that the perseverance of the believers. Not us. Holy Spirit in us. With this, I'm, I'm done. I know I've said that. I, I told you I've grew, I grew up in a Pentecostal church and they did this to me all the time. Give you like five closings. You're like, bro, we don't close at number five. This is enough. Shut up already. <laughs> if we're going to be serious about dealing with temptation, just four quick things and then I'll pray. Four quick things if you want to be just dealing with temptation. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and he is the one that's ultimately sustaining us. But there is a part in us that we have to play in this too. And the part that we play is we have to be honest. We have to deal with it immediately. We have to deal with it ruthlessly. And we have to deal with it consistently. We have to be in a place where we are honest about our temptations. Here's my stuff, and you lay it on the table. This is why you and I were not meant to live on an island. No believer was meant 
to live isolated on an island. Doesn't work like that. That's why every address in the New Testament, to the church of, to the church of. And you have to surround yourself with that group and say, hey, honestly, here's where I'm at with my life. I got to be honest. I've got to deal with it immediately. Because if you don't, you got to understand the tactic of the enemy. He's going to keep luring you out to the dark waters. And you got to be ruthless about it. You have to take it serious. And, and, and sadly, this is a consistent thing that you have to do. You have to be honest about it. You have to deal with it immediately. Deal with it ruthlessly. And deal with it consistently. I, I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what you're trying to make in your life an ultimate that will just lead you down a deep, dark road of despair. But what is that thing that Satan keeps luring in front of you and that you, you know, you've been foolish and you don't see the hook, but there's a hook right there. And I, and I hope this opens your eyes to the reality that he is tempting some of you. And what is that thing that you're being tempted with? Deal with it. That's the application that James would give us in this. And the other application is that knowing that there's a Father in heaven that loves you, that gives us good gifts, the good gift of salvation. And, and we ought to just rest in his good gifts that he gives all of those who believe in Christ. And with that, let us pray.